Welcome to Find Flow, a podcast on the ebb and flow of the IT operations management scene. We take a deep dive into the latest developments on IT operations management, IT service management, and AI ops. Find Flow episodes are on iTunes and Spotify, and remember to subscribe. I'm your host, Sean McDermott, and this is Find Flow. Welcome, everybody. My name is Sean McDermott. This is our season two. And this season, we're focusing in on vendors and the different technologies that are available to, to do AI ops. So today, we have uh, Christian Malone from ServiceNow. So I'm super excited to have ServiceNow on, uh, in the house today. So Christian, welcome to the podcast. Sean, thank you for having me. So Christian, uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. Yeah, I come from operations uh, and uh, before ServiceNow, my current role, I was actually a customer leveraging ServiceNow. In fact, some of the work that I did was uh, beta testing some of the AI and ML capabilities that we have, uh, adding that to my platform. Uh, I worked in the broadcast industry uh, before I joined ServiceNow Federal, and I was focused on a lot of data, a lot of integration work, and supporting teams out there that were trying to use that data to, to, to create insights. So that included uh, migrating to cloud and, and how that changed our data and our applications. That included uh, uh, supporting teams that did data lakes um, and add Hadoop systems. So a, a very broad uh, sense of, of users. And some of them were very data literate. Uh, and frankly, had a lot of team members that would just use whatever was pre-built for them. So uh, we had a lot of uh, a lot of range to, to spread. Good, good. So you come, uh, it's not abnormal, right? A lot of people at ServiceNow coming from the user community, right, and getting hired in. So, uh, so you've got a you've got kind of both lenses of it now, right? You've got the ability to kind of see what customers are experiencing and how you can, you know, shape your solutions for that. I jokingly say it's a, I'm atoning for my past sins. I'm making sure nobody's making the same mistakes I made, and uh, and we did some great things. So you know, at least if I can get them to that level, we're doing really good. And I love to see the customers that take, uh, you know, what I might have been able to attain, and they're going that much further. That's really exciting. Yeah, that's excellent. Good. So, uh, so let's talk about AI ops. Um, and, and I know, you know, in our pre calls, we, we've had a lot of conversations about, you know, your views on AI ops. So let's kind of start this thing off with your perspective on AI ops today and, uh, where, you know, how we got to where we are today and uh, kind of what, what you're seeing in the moment. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I still, I still think we're in a position where AI ops is still, uh, very buzzwordy. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's it's worth talking about by all means. But I think, you know, I saw a recent statistic that said 58% of IT professionals still think that AI ops is a buzzword. And, you know, I come from the broadcast industry before. That's where I did my IT and engineering. And we had high definition. And it was really interesting because that's what we saw there as well. High definition was the new thing. It made a material impact to the way that we worked. And it had to retool a lot of things not, you know, withstanding things like makeup. You would never have thought of that, mm -hmm. but the makeup departments had to increase because now you could see the news people's, you know, actual faces. Uh, but we got high definition buzz overkill. We had high definition TVs that consumers could buy. You could buy high definition remotes. You could buy a high definition toothbrush. And so it really meant, and, and, and consumers are getting better now about fully understanding. If I go look for a high, def, def, uh, high definition television, maybe it's ultra high definition, but maybe that doesn't matter as much as the high dynamic range. Maybe it really depends on whether or not I'm watching sports or news or movies or games. And it's that frame rate in the color space. It's, it's the use case that matters more. And we've kind of gotten a little bit beyond just the buzzwords, I hope. 
Uh, and I'm hoping that's what we're gonna do with AI ops. I hope we're gonna get beyond uh, just seeing it as the term AI ops and understand those 90 different types of AI ops. I'm, I'm sure there's more being created all the time. There's so many different techniques, deep learning, neural nets, natural language understanding. Uh, and, and frankly, a lot of people get the job done with just traditional statistics. Uh, you know, I, I know very few people. Uh, I'm not a data scientist myself that know the difference between a linear regression, when to use a logarithmic, logarithmic regression, um, when to use Chow Lu algorithm. I, I, I think I saw it best with Calvin and Hobbes. I'm a big Calvin Hobbes fan, and they had a great, um, uh, you know, comic panel at one point that just said, you know, Calvin raising his hand in school, saying, you know, with the pace of technology, maybe we should just leave the math to the machines and go outside and play. And, and <laughs> I'm one of those guys that wants to help people to go outside and play, and then I want to go out and play with them. So, yeah. you know, I think we see a lot of buzzwords, but I think we see some real progress. And, and, and I've, I, I think I'm at the right place. I ended up at ServiceNow not because of my trajectory and wanting to be there, but literally because I just started using the ServiceNow platform more and more to solve my problems and my data problems and to integrate my data and to have more insights. And so I ended up here just simply because I was able to leverage the platform to solve problems. Uh, and AI ops just happens to be one of those. Yeah, I totally agree with you on the buzzword thing. You know, I, I remember pre-pandemic, I went to a conference out in uh, Vegas and I don't know how many vendors were in the vendor room, you know, when you go in and the vendor showcase and there's probably, I don't know, 70 or so, somewhere in that night. And almost every single one of them was saying AI ops, right? And you're just like, like, and you walk up and you start talking to them and, and it's, you know, it's their interpretation of it. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that we're trying to do on this podcast is just educate people. And then we have a, AI Ops Evolution Weekly broadcast we do every Friday, and it's really all about trying to to get an understanding of what's going on out there and kind of weed through the noise because the noise is growing. And you have your your history in the in the TV and broadcast arena. I have my you know history of starting. I started a software company in the early two thousands. We did we did Runbook Automation. It was one of the first platforms on the market for Runbook Automation. And then everybody's talking about automation. So that word just got completely buzzed out. So, um, you know, but if, if, and then there's so many applicable, so many things in the operations world applicable with AI and machine learning. And I think there's a lot of, you know, primary use cases now are in the, you know, data collection, you know, root cause analysis and correlation, things like that. But, you know, when you look at AI in, um, the uh, chatbots and customer service or AI in change management and configuration management and predictive, predictive analysis and data analytics. You know, AI is gonna be is in everywhere and all those pieces are part of operations. So they're all kind of AI ops too. So, um, so I, long story short, I agree with you. <laughs> so um, so where, where do you think um, the market is right now primarily for AI ops? Like at this current moment in time, and my, my view is that I hear a lot of people asking about, should I just build a data lake? You know, sort of, if we build it, they will come. And, you know, from my own experience, I think there's times where that makes a lot of sense. I, I come from an operations background. There are lots of times where you need to have that data, especially if it's very proprietary data. Um, if you're a Capital One or a Discover card or something like that, and you want to own those algorithms and own that way of identifying when to send out that next promotion, 
um, or in the broadcast industry, what advertisements are appropriate for what audience demographics. Mm-hmm. You know, you might want to keep that internal. You might want to have that data lake and that storage and that data and, and have data scientists that are on staff to come up with those because that's truly IP that you don't want to have just off the shelf, that you want to have people sign NDAs and not leave with. I don't know that I see the same thing with, with IT data. And I've seen often where teams will be built up to have a data lake and they'll start looking for problems. It's a, it's a solution looking for a problem. They'll come to IT and say, if you send me all your IT data, I bet you I can give you some insights. And I just haven't seen, and there might be cases out there, I'm sure, but I just haven't seen personally where that's really resulting in meaningful uh, insights to the IT teams. Instead, what we have is a lot of customers, probably a vast majority, that are moving to cloud. They're using the same types of services. They're building apps in many of the same frameworks and techniques. And so these underlying, at least from an operational perspective, these underlying logs that we're getting from networks, from, uh, from security tools, from uh, infrastructure, from applications, from databases, et cetera, from Kubernetes, it's so similar across all of our data sets that I just feel like it makes sense for, and, and, and ServiceNow has data scientists for this purpose, that we, we can have vendors provide AI op solutions to very common problems and all the customers do not need to be hiring data scientists and build their own data lakes for these types of problems. Let's let the data scientists solve world hunger. Let's have them get to the moon. Let's have them get to Mars. Let's have them get cars self-driving to Mars, whatever they want to do. It's going to be so much more interesting for them and I'm sure they're coming out of college wanting to work on those problems rather than why my database or my queue depth is, is you know higher than it should be. Yeah, I think I think you bring up a really good point, and we've we've talked about this on our on our weekly broadcast about the skills skill set gap, right? And whether companies are going to be able to really build an AI ops team, whether they want to or not, right? And you see this in a lot of different industries where the largest of the largest suck up, you know, a lot of the top talent, and the you know large other the ne- next phase of or next step of large enterprises really aren't able to compete we're in the talent game on that and you, i mean you see that at google and facebook and things like that and and um and the things that they're able to offer that other you know smaller startups may not be able to do or or, or mid-sized enterprises and uh ultimately you know so how are these companies going to take advantage of ai ops and it's going to be through the vendors right and so i think you bring up a really excellent point on that and how you know, people need to be really paying attention to what's going on in the vendor community and how they're applying AI ops and leveraging it because that's where they're going to get the biggest bang for their buck. And we can go one step further from that. You know, my prediction personally is that we're going to see where the data that resides, those sources of truths in different areas are going to, the, the tool sets that you rely on managing that data will have to adopt AI ops. And so rather than building everything into one repository, I think we're more likely to see that customers are going to kick out vendors who should have AI ops or ML or data insights and are not, or are just not adopting it. So rather than a one size fits all, we're going to find a distributed model where a localized domain centric potentially makes sense in a lot of areas. And then again, there still might be that data lake for that proprietary data or where it makes sense to you know add in data from a lot of different areas and get that really cross correlation between lots of different types of data sets. Yeah. So where do you see AOPS going in the next three to five years? Well, I think you mentioned uh, a gap in, 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 in people, and I think that's a real challenge. Uh, you know, I think that we saw this before. You mentioned you came from an automation background. We saw that with automation as well. The numbers of people that we had on my team, a number of engineers and, and analysts 
that could truly automate was very limited. We had a tremendous number of consumers and a much smaller number of producers. And so I think we're going to see that same thing that we saw with automation, which is a few people are going to really help the organization go forward. We're going to see with the AI as, as well. We're going to see data literate teams that have people on staff that understand that data literacy. Uh, I think you're going to end up with a lot of people that are specialists now, engineers now, that maybe become data plumbers. They're going to be the people that help to make sure that that data gets from their systems that they know very well. And instead of just email alerts or rather than just, you know, SNMP traps or whatever it was before, it's going to be really making sure that that data gets plumbed in properly. Um, and so, you know, working with API and, and REST calls is going to be standard. Uh, and I think anybody that I've seen that's been able to, to wrangle, you know, REST methods have been really great at being able to do that work. But then you have a large number of people that just get their technology. And I think that they might, and this is true for automation as well as AIOps, I think they might become more of those um, policy builders. They understand what is good and what's not. They understand how the system should be running. And, you know, network teams have that where people build network configurations that auto run. You don't sit there and do all the routing yourself, but just based on the static rules that you've put in. Um, you build policies and set configurations and it goes and runs by itself. So I think we'll end up with the same thing. Um, it could be data insights where people are, are you know, focusing on making sure that the right insights make it to the right teams. It could be tying it to automation. And I think that as you have distributed systems which have those AI ops or those machine learning capabilities with the data at that decentralized level, I think that could be really helpful because it's most likely that those teams that are um, local to that data that are leveraging that data are also going to be the ones that say, we're going to be the ones that automate. And they'll know when we see this issue and the data shows us that there's a problem, we would normally have done this. Maybe we could tie the automation to it, and now we have a self-healing system. I, I know that the, the whole idea is that applications become self-healing. Infrastructure should become self-healing. Organizations should become self-healing. It's going to take everybody sort of on board in that decentralized model, I think, to get there. Yeah, it, it's interesting you talk about, I mean, automation's a nirvana, right? Everyone talks about that. And you know, there's so many, and this kind of comes back to the noise issue, right? There's just so much noise out there. And, and when you hear people talk, you know, some, some companies talking about, well, we automate, it's really, to me, it's like task-based automation versus truly end-to-end -end automation. And, and you're not going to really get to a, a fully automated environment, um, prescriptive and automated re re remediation until you're able to really understand how to do end-to-end -end automation and all the integration and workflow around that and where AI and machine learning touches every single kind of point of that. And uh, that's what I think is ultimately the most exciting thing for me because I'm an automation guy, right? I, that's where I come out of. And the ability to really get to that point using AI and machine learning is pretty exciting. So any other, uh, any other comments on, on the state of AI ops and where we're going or you just want to jump right into... Uh, Let's, let's hear about uh, ServiceNow. Yeah, no, I said, as I said earlier, I, I ended up at ServiceNow simply because I was able to use the platform to solve some of my issues. And, and one of those was that I had another platform that was doing monitoring in my infrastructure and it didn't have what I needed. It didn't have that AI ops capabilities. Um, without naming names, essentially the issue that I had was that it would create thresholds for whatever that issue might be. But those thresholds were created by looking at seven days of data um, after that seven days, it would use linear regression to build a model based on, you know, warning at two times sigma or alert, you know, criticality at three times sigma. And then it basically just set that line for you. It had no seasonality. 
So, you know, we ended up with a real problem in that we encouraged our uh, stakeholders, we encouraged our app owners, our infrastructure uh, platform owners to go out there and say, the sooner you get it into monitoring, the sooner you start sending us data, um, the, the more we're going to be able to react when you go live. We, we often did, but we, we really tried to avoid that. Hey, it just went live this weekend. Can you start collecting data and monitoring it? Um, security was in the same boat. They get that all the time. So when we encourage people to start doing it earlier, here's the catch. When I have a data model like that, that builds it over the first seven days and never looks back at it, effectively, I was shooting myself in the foot because now I've got a system that with no load, because they're bringing in early, I now set these thresholds through this dynamic baseline. And effectively now, I have a super low threshold. So as soon as they load users onto it in the testing phases or as they go live, I have way too much noise. And so I think that's one of the things that we're looking for, which is, again, the appropriate AI, the appropriate machine learning, the appropriate statistics, whatever it might be, uh, to be able to get the outcome that we're looking for. And I was looking for the ability to have earlier adoption of you know, monitoring, in this case, of bringing that data in, and at the same time, a mature enough AI-based, AI ops-based system that would allow me to track that over time and understand that. With ServiceNow, I've, I've been able to meet the data scientists here. Um, you know, some of them are out in Seattle, Washington. I've got to have lunch with them and geek out. It's really fun. Other than having a doctor in front of their name, um, you know, or a PhD behind their name, they are regular people. And it's fun because we get to talk about real issues. And it's not about geeking out about how the data comes in or how we store it or data buses or anything else. Uh, but it was really about how do we understand when we see certain data coming in, what's really happening in the environment? What's, what about the context? What about the intent? And I think that's the thing where on the ServiceNow platform, we can look beyond just AI ops data, just observability of just the data coming in. Uh, you know, for me, I, I think of that something like, uh, you know, self-driving car company making a self-driving car just based on inertial sensors. You know, how fast are we going? Things like that. And not taking into account cameras and weather data. I, I really want a self-driving car that knows both what's around me from a visual perspective, but also knows if it's super cold, because it might handle accident avoidance differently at zero degrees temperature versus, you know, on a warm, sunny, sunny day. So I think that context really makes sense. And, and, and that's one of the things at, at ServiceNow as a platform we're able to do is we bring the AI ops, especially observability data, especially logs, metrics, um, events. Um, there are other places in our platform where we're able to bring data in and apply AI to it, natural language understanding, chatbots, for example. But, you know, if I'm just looking at operational, uh, you know, let's say monitoring data observability, it's so helpful to have that extra context. We know the changes that are occurring. We know, uh, we know information about how high a priority this is versus other, the relationships between different systems. Uh, you know, now that we have DevOps, we have maybe even the DevOps pipeline and, and the changes that are occurring there. And that's just so much more helpful than having to try to cluster things together with just the data by itself, just the alerts, and hoping that I have enough context. So, you know, I think that's what we're going to see is a lot of systems out there that, that they, they go above and beyond that just that, that clustering by itself and they look for that extra context. Uh, and again, I think that will help when other systems out there have their AI or ML or, or you know, AI ops and they're feeding into other systems. So, you know, you can have systems that are looking at their data, making good decisions, filtering out the noise, and then that might integrate with ServiceNow. And now that integration only gets better and ServiceNow is able to apply the visibility we have into the environment and filter that further, I think that's a great thing. Yeah, I, I think I think what's interesting about the ServiceNow 
uh, approach, right? It's just the whole foundation that you have, right? And when when you look at the key word here to me is context, right? Because without context, um, you really don't necessarily understand exactly what's happening, why it's happening, things like that. So, you know, and I know that ServiceNow has a lot of uh, integration capabilities and open APIs and things like that. And, you know, companies can, can tack onto that and pull that information in, but you guys having it just native in your platform, right, is uh, an interesting approach that, you know, an advantage I think that you guys have and the the ability to build context and i think you know what's interesting is that what you bring up is around uh the cm you know a lot of people think about cmdb as context right and that's certainly true but the ability to bring in um changes and maintenance windows and like you said the devops uh pipeline to see you know what's been what's been changed and is that affecting things going on right now uh is is it's really interesting. Really interesting. Yeah, we can we can deconstruct the ServiceNow platform. Um, you know, this is not an official stance. This is just sort of my own mental model. But we can de deconstruct the ServiceNow platform into the most simplest bits, which is from a user perspective, we have users, um, we have you know employees that are using ServiceNow. We have metadata about them. You know, we we understand if they're hired or they're not, if they're you know uh, what teams they're a part of, that context. And then we also understand the metadata beyond just that, the, the, actually moving from the metadata more to the context, which is, um, you know, are they to be assigned? If I have an incident coming in, it's assigned to a team, who's on call? And, and it's that relationship between different teams, who's assigned a ticket and why is that ticket waiting for so long? We can take that exact same data model and move it over to the infrastructure side. So from a ServiceNow platform perspective, I'm expecting to have an inventory of everything in the environment. It's a representation of the environment metadata about everything. I know what's retired and what's not. Maybe we even know what's going to be in the environment that's not even connected to the network yet. You know, that's very powerful. And then we also have the context. And as you mentioned, the, the configuration management databases, some of that, and that's evolving over time into what we call service graph. And that's taking into account code because what used to be a snapshot of your environment currently isn't enough anymore. Nowadays, we have to look at, or at least if we're going to succeed in the getting towards that nirvana of a self-healing application, we need to shift everything left. And so it's looking at code that's coming through a pipeline that will soon change your environment and being able to use that as a data source, being able to use that to be able to run configuration compliance rules to say, is that going to break the environment? Does that fail policy? And it's so nice that we can get to a position where we're avoiding the best AI ops, the best event alert, a log is one that I've never received. It's because we proactively solved that earlier on in the process and I never got there. And the same thing with change. Anybody today, you know, we talk about ground game a lot. You don't need to wait for the computers to solve all the problems for you. The better your change matures and the better your change becomes from reactionary, um, hoping you catch people, hoping they submit to detected changes, um, unauthorized changes, also submitted changes, automated changes through DevOps pipelines. The better change process you have, chances are you're going to have fewer alerts and logs and outages. That's a great way to make sure the team you do have do have the skills. They do have you know uh, enough uh, uh, you know work to be able to do it. You take stuff off their plate just by making it easier and uh, avoid them from the beginning. So you talked about the data scientists. So let's dig into that a little bit. Your um, data scientists are out there. They're building models and things like that into the platform. Um, how much? Uh, how much? 
control does a team, does a customer have in being able to go in and make modifications to some of the AI, the machine learning models or, or build their own models inside of your platform? Yeah, there, there is some areas where that can be controlled, but we're really listening to our customers here. We're really listening that users aren't interested in going in and, and, and changing those and picking the algorithm. What we find is that people really want to be able to do the normal daily work that they're doing. And this is one advantage on the platform. People often forget that machine learning has that second word learning. And so somebody becomes the teacher. We don't just turn on a, you know, a green checkbox or, or turn something on and walk away. It takes a tremendous amount of teaching and making sure that it understands the context as we've been talking about. And so that's one of the advantages of what we've been doing on the platform is that operators just can continue to work day to day, uh, uh, closing that ticket, promoting that alert, grouping things together, marking things with a you know, up or down you know, thumb, you know, just ranking things helps to go back to our unsupervised data model, um, which is behind the scenes sort of taking some of those inputs. So it's sort of a semi-supervised mm -hmm. in some ways, but you're not having to go in and take that day job of becoming that teacher and teaching that system what is what. Just by doing the normally da daily operations, we can keep the data scientists out of it. We can look at the data models and we understand the right algorithm to run based on knowledge base articles. It's going to be natural language understanding based on uh, changes versus metrics coming in, um, confidence bands that we have. You know, we're, we're looking at the type of data and the type of context, and we're helping out to pick that right algorithm. But we do have areas where you can go in and tune those to some degree, yes. Good. Do you, um, so as far as um, ServiceNow's long-term strategy, where do you guys, I know you don't want to get into kind of safe harbor conversations and stuff, but where do you guys see you know, ServiceNow really making some significant investments over in the next couple of years? Well, we've just made one. Um, we acquired a company called Lightstep. So that's one that I can definitely share and, and, and talk mm -hmm. about. So that's good timing. And I was extremely excited, not just because I didn't think when we look at what types of observability data we bring in, I always thought that we'd be able to extend that and do logs because we made an investment in another company that brought us the ability to do logs. Um, really exciting there because we're not just a log analysis. I got to work on an internal project using that technology, and it was amazing. I've worked on other log analysis tools before, and you had to write rules. You had to really put some effort into knowing what's the problem or what I'm looking for. And in this case, we literally spent all of our time just doing tickets to say, hey, send me your data. Hey, send me your data. I'd like data from the Palo Altos and the security systems and the network gear. And we didn't do anything else, and immediately we were getting insights, and we were able to sit down the very next thing we did was sit down with our, our you know, uh, uh, team members, our platform owners, and say, these are the anomalies that we're seeing from the system. We didn't tune anything. Now's the time to go through and say, that's really important, and you know, let's not look at that again. Um, that was refreshing. That was amazing. And so that sort of AI as a, as a product instead of as a project was, was really refreshing. And then I thought that's the bee's knees. We've got logs, we're, we're wonderful, we're great. We'll never get traces, which was that next step of sort of, that's the thing that sets us aside from, you know, just completing this whole puzzle. And then we acquired Lightstep, who is the, the, the original sort of originator of this concept of open tracing. So I really encourage you to check out Lightstep, really amazing company, amazing what they've done with open tracing. We're so delighted to have them, you know, as part of the portfolio now. And the very first time we got to meet with Ben, who, who founded that organization, used to work for Google, solved a lot of their problems at a scale that many of our customers will never, ever even get to. 
uh, he said a lot of the same things that we know. Just in our DNA, we know this, which is it wasn't enough just to see the data. They could build a system that really went through and, and started to correlate all these data points from all these different systems, but it was about understanding the changes that were occurring. And so LightStep really ties into the observability and that sort of DevOps and SRE model. And I think that's just so important because so many of our customers are going to be looking at AI ops in the context of their data coming from these newer um, you know, modern platforms that are going to have the changes committed to them much smaller, much more often in that sort of DevOps and agile uh, motions. So he was very clear with us and we all agreed that you have that sort of control that you can just pendulum swing and say, let's take off all of the controls. Let's allow everybody to go as fast as they want, not care about quality, and you'll go extremely quick in your code releases. But then you run into the problem with stability. So you go to super stable and now we're doing one release a month and we don't want to go back to that. And so I think AI ops as a tool will ultimately help us as that pendulum to help control and leverage and keep that in the center where we're looking at agile metrics, we're looking at observability data, we're looking at the uh, DevOps pipeline, and we're ultimately able to help give customers that ability to go as fast as you can while staying as stable as you can and keep those both in balance. And I think that's something really unique. I'm really excited to be a part of the company as we're doing this now. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So good stuff. So, uh, so anything else? I think we're coming up on our time here. Anything else you want to you want to share with the uh, the audience? Uh, just my my I shared my Calvin Hobbes quote. Uh, the only other thing that I'll say is that I um, I, I I read a, a a really right a really great author long ago, well before automation, well before high definition, well before AI ops. Um, Neil Postman's a great great author, and and he had wrote a couple books about education, a couple books about technology, and and one of the things that he talks about technology is that. It's, um, it's always, new technology is always uh, a, a blessing and a curse, always. It's not either or, it's not, you know, both. it's always going to be both of those. So I think that's the same thing with AI ops. I think we're going to have to understand that this is going to change the way that we work. It changes how vendors approach and it shouldn't just be marketing terms. Uh, it really has within ServiceNow, I've seen this, I've met with the team members, really changed the way that we're approaching um, problem solving, the way we're approaching arming and, and giving the capabilities to users to do their work in a better way, to be able to do things that you couldn't think about an iceberg analogy. You know, you can only have enough staff to work on that visible part of the iceberg, but if you think about the data, it's who knows how much larger than that, and you don't even know. So when you start piping that data into a system, it's really exciting that we're able to have a system where picking out the right data, not having to, to rely on data scientists, but still getting those insights. So if it's a problem and it's under that water, it rises up. We get to see that and that gets promoted to something that's visible. I think that's wonderful. And again, I think that's part of the blessing. Um, the curse is we've got to get past the buzzwords. The curse is we've got to actually start looking each of us in our organization and say, what are we doing today? And I like to use the term ground game, which is what can I do today? Forget AI ops. What can I do to be able to further what we're doing. And it could be automation as well. Um, if we're doing something over and over, let's go for it. If I have something that's um, data that we find out caused an outage and a vendor says, this is what it said, I always said at the time, let's make sure that we have something written that says I'm always gonna look for that line or better yet predicts it. I think now that we have AI ops in place, we should start expecting that the AI, AI ops will help finding those predictions. Now we need to correlate those and be able to say, let's make sure that those predictions that are made are becoming insightful. People are actually adopting it 
and tie that together to your point about that automation or that next step. Just because we're throwing insights at people doesn't mean that they're actually going to change their behaviors day to day and aligning organizations to be able to adopt AI ops in a meaningful way. And again, it could be ground game, it could be statistics, it could be um, different techniques before we even get to AI ops. I think that's ultimately gonna change um, how effective people are and how effective the organizations are, regardless of how they score themselves on an AI ops adoption. Yes, so your, your um, correlation of AI ops to the HD, I'm gonna steal that by the way, because I think that's a perfect um, setup. Because one of the things that I say all the time is that AI ops is not a technology, AI ops is really a strategy because it's gonna have so many downstream effects of your organization, how people do things. It's gonna create change, people don't like change. It's gonna have organizational behavior issues. Um, it's going to streamline things. It's gonna highlight things that people don't see now today. Um, and it's it, the more you use it, the more it's going to enact change and, and that core, you know, that comparison to HD, you know, when you think about like HD is just, oh, it seems like such a no brainer, but the amount of like the HD files are so much bigger, which then means that you've got to look at your IT infrastructure and your, your, your video processing equipment all has to be upgraded because it can't handle these file sizes. And again, you talked about makeup, you talk about TVs. So this one thing of, Hey, let's move to HD had so many downstream effects, but in the end produce a great product. Right. And, um, but people don't understand the complexity of it takes to actually transition from standard to HD. So I, I, I appreciate that analogy because I think it's spot on for what we're yeah, doing here. And, and, sorry to interrupt, but let's take that same analogy and take it one step further, which is at the same time, everybody was chasing that greater storage and those, you know, get better makeup and better lights and everything. What was starting up YouTube? And what does it turn yeah. out? What is what? What do our kids watch? They don't watch the highest quality, ultra high def. Yeah. They watch whatever is you know blocky on YouTube. It's about the content. And so I think that's my analogy back to AI ops, which is we can all geek out about all the different ways we can get data and all the insights. But at the end of the day, what might make the biggest difference for an organization is just looking at what they can do and starting to take a more holistic approach of. These are the problems that we have. Is it a data problem? Is it a people problem? Is it a process problem? And just starts to solve all of those in equal measure. Ultimately, it's the context, like you had said. And I think if we're if we're if we're, you know, moving towards that ability to say, our environments are changing, our technology is changing, our data is changing. But at the end of the day, we all just want that stability and now that speed. I think we can balance that. I think that's no problem. Yeah, it's it's very interesting because I um I I've been. Uh... I've been using YouTube a lot lately because I've got a project coming up on a personal project and I'm doing a lot of research and the video quality is unbelievable on some of these things. They're just, and, but it's so, it's so accessible now, right? You've got 4k on your phones, right? So you're brought, so you're recording in, in 4k natively on your phone. So it's, um, yeah, but you're right. It all comes down to the content in the end, you know, you would look at a, a lower quality broadcast if the content was good. Right. And and it all comes down to the use case. And I think that's a great analogy for AI ops and I think a great stopping point. So, Christian, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Uh, learned a lot about ServiceNow and it's exciting stuff you guys got going on over there. Uh, anything else you want to say? Just my pleasure for being here. Thank you for having me and good luck with the series. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, good luck. And it's nice meeting you. Take care. Take care. Thanks for joining us in this week's episode. IT operations management is all about staying on top of the wave. Hit the like button, 
Tell us what you thought about this episode. Share and subscribe. And we'll see you next week on Find Flow.